Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I would like to welcome you to From the Editor's Desk, a podcast where myself and Kyle Rasur, Editor-in-Chief at Compliance Week, unpack some of the top stories which have or will appear in Compliance Week each month. We look at the top compliance stories, talk some sports, and generally try to solve the world's problems. This episode, Kyle and I take a look at some of the stories which appeared in Compliance Week in February, including changes to the corporate enforcement policy and how the DOJ is trying to encourage greater self-disclosure. We also preview some of the stories which will appear in Compliance Week in March of 2023, including the massive data privacy edition. So look out for those from Compliance Week. We also discuss Sports and Compliance Week 2023, all on this episode of From the Editor's Desk. Hello. Hello, everyone, and welcome to From the Editor's Desk, a podcast where we unpack some of the top stories which have or will appear in Compliance Week, look at some of the top compliance stories, and then talk some sports and generally try to solve the world's problems. I'm your co-host, Tom Fox. And I'm Kyle Brasser, Editor-in-Chief at Compliance Week. I'm once again back with Tom. going to talk some of, uh, well, some of the stories Compliance Week's published, some of the things that we're keeping an eye on, and as always, we'll talk some sports. In today's episode, we're going to be taking a look back at top stories from Compliance Week in February 2023, and also looking ahead to some of what we'll be covering in March. So, Kyle, what were some of the top stories or perhaps some that interested you from February of 2023 this year? Yeah, so right now we're kind of in the heat of annual report season for those firms with uh, financial years that end at the same time as the calendar year. Um, So one of the things that we've seen a lot this month, especially for us having a big presence in the financial services industry, most regulated industries, is these investigations going on regarding uh, off-channel communications. So we've had uh, about a dozen banks fined last year some upwards of 200 million for record keeping failures regarding employees that were using apps like WhatsApp and WeChat to communicate regarding business in violation of record keeping rules. So, you know, this, it was, it was a lot of banks caught up in that initial enforcement, but that was really kind of only the, the start of it. So at that point, it's pretty obvious that now that the SEC and the CFTC are basically investigating every bank for the same thing. So, you know, we've seen a lot of banks making their disclosures this month. Society General is one, Wells Fargo is another, saying that they're currently under investigation by the SEC or CFTC. Some banks, HSBC, saying they've already reached agreements in principle to settle potential violations. So, you know, this is something where it's not really going to be going away anytime soon. You know, it's really kind of the enforcement spree last year was the first salvo, and I think it's pretty clear that we can expect a lot more to come, at least over the course of this next year. You know, I think at this point, the, the message is pretty clear regarding where the SEC and CFTC stands in this in this area. But interesting to us to see so many of these large banks kind of backpedaling and also the way that they've been responding. You know, some of the reports about Morgan Stanley and JP Morgan and some of these other banks that are finding their employees that led to the violations is really interesting. Yeah, it's been fascinating to watch and the regulators seem very, I don't want to say speaking sternly, but they're certainly sternly fining and penalizing these banks. And, and I'm just waiting till it breaks out to the 
to the broader non-financial arena in some way as well. Yeah. And, you know, to, to take things non-financial as well, because obviously, you know, we cater to multiple industries in our coverage. You know, the other big storyline has been what's going on at the DOJ. So, you know, the, as, of, as of the week we're recording this podcast, they have now published their guidance regarding self-disclosure of, of violations and the, the new incentives that are in play to prompt businesses to voluntarily self-disclose violations. You know, it's, it, it's been pretty apparent from the moment of the Monaco memo that um, this is something that the DOJ is really trying to, to center in on is getting these businesses to come forward and, and report their own violations and, and really sweeten the, the, the deal for them to do so. So I think this is probably one of the more tangible examples of, of the way that the DOJ is trying to incentivize these businesses to come forward with their violations, some, some being able to avoid penalties altogether if they do so. So Kyle, this is obviously something that's talked about a lot in the compliance community. And I talk to a lot of both in-house practitioners and lawyers in private practice who advise corporations. And universally, they say self-disclosure is, is one of the two or three most difficult topics. And I guess the thing at this point that interests me is, has DOJ really moved the needle in incentivizing companies to move forward? I have evolved in my own thinking on this, and I think the DOJ may have to go even further, but uh, I know you guys are, are actively also investigating and reporting that. So I'm really going to be intrigued to see what you guys come up with and where this story goes. But I think it's all I can say is it's going to keep going. Yeah. I think the thing I'll be keeping an eye on is the DOJ's declinations page. You know, if you're, if you're someone who tends to keep an eye on that page, it's updated, I don't know, once or twice a year if even. So if they can start to show more examples of declining prosecution, you know, based on the actions of the company, I think that's when you'll start to have companies actually buy in. Because right now it's, it's hard to imagine that you're going to get off so easy when the examples are so few and far between. So that's going to really be what it ends up coming down to is, is being able to provide and point to and be able to say, well, these are companies that this is what they did and this is why they were able to avoid any prosecution whatsoever. Kyle, I remember when you came into the compliance field, and today I'm going to anoint you a full compliance geek for admitting you check out the DOJ declination page. You have elevated your status in my eyes exponentially. Well done. Any pages that are in my favorites bar. It's not a very exciting <laughs> favorites bar, but it's incredibly informative. <laughs> no, you're absolutely right. And oh, obviously the DOJ will give us speeches where they say this is important, but you're right. It's execution is where the rubber meets the road. And when we start to see that and companies start to, to move forward and say, yes, we saw it in our interest to self-disclose, that's that's when hopefully the bar will be moved. But watching that page and seeing what happens is going to be the true test. I'll be hitting refresh. <laughs> you only have to do it twice a year. So at the Keep my fingers in, bright. Anything else you've looked at in uh, February that's interesting to you? Yeah, I mean, there's a few things we're still sort of keeping an eye on. So actually, the date that we're recording this podcast marks the one-year anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So, you know, that's obviously been just such a huge compliance storyline for the past year. And I, I think it's 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 easy to sort of think that the the bulk of the reaction from a sanctions perspective is kind of in the past, but... Just today, the Treasury sanctioned more than 80 entities and really started to, to clamp down. And we had a speech earlier this week from the number two of the department 
who's saying that they're looking to reinvigorate their enforcement efforts. So, you know, I think this past year has really just been setting this, the, the table with sanctions. And now you're really going to start to see the execution on it from an enforcement perspective. So that's going to be something we're going to be keeping a close eye on. You know, there was a, a bank earlier this month. Um, I, I apologize if I butcher the spelling, but Rafizin over in Austria that disclosed that they're under investigation for OFAC regarding their Russia and Ukraine business. So you're going to probably start to see a lot more of that coming. What are some of the things that you guys are either working on for March or you have on your radar to take a closer look at in March, Kyle? Yeah, so right now we're actually, for the first week of March, we're prepping the rollout of our our spring print edition special report on the U.S. data privacy landscape. So, you know, I think I, I may have discussed this with you on our last episode, Tom, but we wanted to start the year by just taking a look and taking a fresh look at where the United States stands regarding data privacy legislation. We have two laws that are in effect as of January 1st, two more coming in July and then one later this year. So a good time to just sort of take stock of where things are and where things are going. Um, so those, that content's gonna be rolling out online first week of, of March. You know, some good looks at where things stand from a state perspective, where things stand from a federal perspective. Obviously, all of us are, are really hoping that the Congress or someone can move forward with some sort of federal law because the last thing any compliance professional wants is 50 different laws that all have their own little quirks and, and individualities. So taking a look at all that, you know, where are the new privacy shield stands with Europe? And also I, I wrote a column on what I believe the legacy of the CCPA will be, you know, that law is getting a pretty significant facelift this year um, and is going to be kind of a lot stronger. But I think the, the version that we saw that took effect in 2020 and carried out over these last three years, I saw a lot of positives from it. Yeah, it was only enforced once in terms of a fine, but great to see the California AG's office working with businesses to make sure that they were getting in compliance. To me, that there's more value to that than just hammering out penalties left and right but actually taking the time to spend the time with these businesses, point them in the direction and get them to be complying with the law. Well, I for one am, am really looking forward for the comprehensive view, but frankly, for the resource guide, or the resource of that as well, I think that's going to be a huge boon for the Compliance Week uh, subscriber base and uh, kudos to you guys for doing it. Yeah, and, and one of the things, and, and kudos back to the compliance community on this, is when we try to do these special editions, we always try to do a feature that we do called Ask a CCO where a lot of these same questions we're analyzing in our stories, we pose to a handful of compliance officers and get their take on it. So great to be able to have that as part of this issue. You know, we, we asked a handful of compliance officers, hey, what do you want to see in a federal privacy law? And all of them, they just want to see one. That's the main thing. They want the consistency. So, you know, we, we're hearing that and we're trying to reflect that in our coverage. You know, it, we want to see it too, but that's not the case right now. So you know, what do you have to do to to be able to follow all this sort of patchwork that's in place as of now anyway? Uh, anything else we can look forward to in March, Kyle? Yeah, you know, we're going to be really kind of kicking into high gear on promotion for our our national conference in May. So 10 weeks out from the conference, you know, I expect to sort of do a, a 10 things I'm looking forward to preview of the of the event. You know, that's always our, our flagship event. That's something where we really try to make our presence in this industry known. So, you know, it's going to be really exciting to be able to to start to preview that, start to look ahead at some of the content that's going to be coming, but also hopefully soon we'll be shoring up some of the, the regulator presence at the event. Last year, we were able to have Kenneth Bleep there from the DOJ. We had Hester Purse and Allison Heron-Lee from the SEC. So this year, we're sort of trying to, to strike that, that same uh, 
regulator presence. You know, I, I do believe at this point we were able to secure someone from the more of the, the customs border and commerce side, you know, to be able to speak to the UFLPA, if I'm not mistaken. So just trying to get different perspectives in there, but hear from the regulators and really be able to provide some strong feedback for our audience. Kyle, I was on a podcast last week where I can't remember who the guest was, but he said, you know, Tom, we were both at the Kenneth Willett speech at Compliance Week 2022. So people were still citing to that speech and his remarks and the importance of those remarks for the compliance community. So having those regulators there is hugely significant and hugely important as well. Any any keynotes you could maybe give us a tease of? Yeah, I could certainly start to, to speak through some of it. And actually, we have the preliminary agenda out on online as well. So if you go to the Compliance Week website and click on the events drop down, you can access that and start to get an idea of how it's shaping up. One of the people we will have there is, uh, I do believe he was involved with the Netflix documentary on Bernie Madoff that recently aired. And so he's going to be able to speak to that a little bit. And he's going to do so with an expert on corporate bystandership. So obviously the, the Bernie Madoff story is very well known, but you know we're going to be talking more to the the situation from the perspective of who were the, the people that kind of allowed it to happen. Because obviously that there's a lot of value for compliance professionals in that to understand how these things happen, and not just from the person who's committing the actions, but the people around it that enable that. So that's going to be a really exciting keynote. We do also have, we always try to inject some more soft skills kind of keynotes into our, our conference as well. Just something that can be a little bit more relatable from a human perspective. You know, last year we did have an expert on leadership and being able to take care of yourself in addition to taking care of your business and your employees. So this year, I do believe we have a couple of folks that will be able to speak from the psychosocial side. You know, that's always a really big draw for our audience, especially the senior leaders that we're able to attract. You know, a lot of the chief compliance officers that are there, they, they've got a pretty good grip on their compliance program, but they can learn a lot from the more of just the, the, the soft skills side and speaking to some of the human element of the role, especially in terms of managing their own workloads but also just trying to be mindful of their employees. You know, these are not easy jobs. They're big lifts. And it's, it's important to remember everyone's human. So be exciting to have some of those sessions as well, just to kind of balance things out. It can't all be regulation. So uh, the uh, sports news over the past go. month had three things for us. We had some, some kind of significant events, I think, in all three sports. We're going to start with the Super Bowl, which ended... NFL season and what uh, I wanted to maybe get your thoughts on the Super Bowl itself, not really the wrap up of the NFL season, but you know, what did Kyle the fan see in that other than the Patriots weren't in it? Yeah, I know. Right. And that's, that's music to the ears of the rest of the country. Anyway, <laughs> I always love a game that's competitive. I don't think, you know, if every Super Bowl was like the year the Broncos got absolutely blown out by the Seahawks, there would just be no fun. Um, so I love the fact that the game ended up coming down to the wire, uh, you know, coming from New England. We also, we do love a game that ends in a field goal because we've come out on the positive side of that more often than, than many other organizations. So, you know, to be able to have it come down to the wire there, I think is always interesting, uh, but it's also always the, the, again, there's the, the human elements always so attractive when it comes to sports and being able to see these n normal people do sort of superhuman things. And that's what I think we saw with Patrick Mahomes this year. You know, he, he basically limped off into halftime 
was able to lead a comeback in the second half. I mean, that's that's just captivating TV right there. And I don't it's, even if you're not a sports fan, you know, there's a lot that you can certainly just be interested in. It's very cinematic, I suppose. But you know, as a as a fan of of sports and just an observer, um, again, I'm just happy that we got an interesting one as opposed to uh, just blowout or anything like that. It certainly was a lot of fun. It was certainly some great offensive football. I'm a full self-absorbed geek, and I love – I was always defensive back, so from the defensive side of the ball, and I'm always interested in that. And in this game, I saw something I see, unfortunately, too often, which is teams, great teams that make college playoff games or the Super Bowl, they – basically go with those that brung them and whatever their defense was, whatever their strategy was, that's what they bring. And unfortunately they don't tend to make adjustments. And I saw Philadelphia who had one of the top defenses in the league with a great front four find they couldn't reach Mahomes. They couldn't pressure him and they certainly couldn't sack him. And in a regular game, you'd say, okay, well, we're going to amp up the pressure in the second half. We're going to start doing some blitzes, do some stunts, do something. And they didn't do any of that really till the last drive or two. And so that really intrigued me about Philadelphia. The flip side to that was I never thought the Kansas City offensive line, which has been skewered this year, would play the way they did. I don't know what they did. I'm not an offensive line guru enough to know what they were doing. But between with them giving Mahomes the time they gave him, that was one of the great performances I've seen. Only exceeded by Jalen Hurts, who three years ago I would never have said could have led a team to, to the Super Bowl with his passing. And so uh, one of my favorite lines from Tony Romo is, you have to give great players the opportunities to make great plays. And that's the other thing I saw. Both quarterbacks gave their top players opportunities to make great plays. And I disagreed with, I still don't know what a catch is. <laughs> I don't think you, know, you know, you fall down and the ball bounces in your arm. Nope, not a catch. So I get frustrated with that, but I really enjoyed the game. And, and I'm like you, it was, it was so competitive. Uh, we have two young quarterbacks. I hope they're around for a long time. Yeah, I think it's it's interesting that, you know, the Eagles, the last Super Bowl they won just a few years ago was another similar game where there was not really much defense going on, and they were able to come out on the advantageous end of that. You know, this time around, it wasn't so much the same, and I think it really speaks to a lot of the beauty of the NFL. You know, when you talk about that offensive line, they can perform pretty poorly all season long, but if they all clicked in on the one game where it matters, that's all, that's all that matters. Right. Uh, we are at the uh, midway point of the NBA, and I was going to suggest we maybe reflect on that. But then I thought about, I'm not sure I've ever seen the level of superstars traded right before the trade deadline in season in the NBA. So maybe what are your thoughts on, on this reshuffling? Obviously, uh, New Jersey, or not New Jersey, Brooklyn and the Nets unloading their players Um has really changed the dynamics, I think, of uh, potentially the arc of the rest of the season. Yeah, I, I think it really speaks to the, the parity that's going on this year. You know, it, it seems like at this point in the season, there's a, more than a handful of teams that have a realistic shot at winning it all. You know, every now and then you sort of, the years of the Golden State Warriors dominance, for example, everyone sort of knew the Warriors were going to win at the end of the year. But this year, it really feels like it could go either way with a lot of teams. And I think that that's where you see those trade deadlines 
where there is such a, a frenzy to make acquisitions and try to put yourself over a hump to be in that position to be the team that wins. So this year, that's the impression I got is I think there are a lot of teams that are fairly confident about their chances. You know, even if they're not necessarily a, a number one seed, they still feel like the players they have are the types who will take it to the next level in the postseason and be able to put the team over the top. So I feel like that's kind of how the, the deadline ended up playing out. But obviously, the, the focal point is is most certainly the deals the Nets made and, and trading Kevin Durant to the Suns and trading Kyrie Irving to the Mavericks. You know, I, I think when I look at those trades, they're they're very similar in the sense that they're big gambles by the teams who acquired the players. But I think they're gambles in different ways. You know, obviously for the Suns to trade for Durant, they gave up a lot of future assets to do so. I think one well, was five first round picks as well as some players. And then for the Mavericks to acquire Irving, I think there's a big threat of you're gambling the, the future culture of your organization just from the, the, the player and, you know, everything that sort of has surrounded him most recently, obviously, in the last couple of months, but even just dating back to the way that his his last few runs with certain teams have gone. Um, so those are always big chances. And, and maybe you do put yourself in an advantageous position for one season, but you always got to think of the, the long-term ramifications. You know, there's it's worth it if you win the title, but if you don't and you come short, uh, there can be some real steep prices that the moves made. I absolutely agree. Let me turn just to focus just a little bit uh, to the following. Uh, I'm always interested in the Celtics, mainly because I listen to Bill Simmons' podcast, so I have to always listen to the Celtics, about the Celtics. But their level of consistent play this year, I think, has just been one of the best stories in the NBA, consistently good play. And – some of the teams in the East, obviously Milwaukee and Philadelphia, formerly Brooklyn, but there were some very talented players. And so what I wanted to ask you is, I have a friend in Milwaukee, and I was texting him, and I said, do you watch the Bucks every time just so you can see Giannis, just to see somebody that great? And the same question to you, are you do you realize you're in the middle of something special, or does Boston, the city, recognize the Celtics are – are really special this year and and as great as they were last year, I think they've taken it up a level. Or do we just as fans get so inured they're our Celtics and, you know, that's what we expect? Or or how do you think through something like that? Boston is a tough egg to crack with that type of question. You know, and it's and it's not so much just the the fact that, you know, the city's priorities are all over the place sports wise, but it's as good as the Celtics have been, the Bruins are doing the same exact thing in the NHL and are on pace for maybe potentially a record-breaking season in terms of success. So I think that's, it's easy to get distracted and to not think so much about what's going on. But I think it's certainly starting to click. You know, you mentioned with Giannis and, and kind of realizing in the moment that you're watching something special. I think this is the season that we're really starting to see that with Jason Tatum with the Celtics. And I think that that is what's going to resonate with fans, you know. When the Celtics were in the big three era in the you know early 2000s or you know, early 2010s, uh, that the Celtics always were drawing attention and and being caught in the eye just because of the star power of the Paul Pierce and Kevin Garnett and Ray Allen. But now we're we're getting back to that same point with the Jason Tatum, and that's where I think people really start to realize what they have in the team and how spoiled they are, you know, from a fan perspective. Um, but you know, the, this is a city that loves its hockey just as much. It loves its baseball, although the Red Sox are maybe not maybe not in the best position this year, and loves its football. So it's hard to put all your eggs in one basket. It's a good position to be in when you have four teams that are can be competitive each year and could certainly captivate any fan. 
Well, and that brings us to Major League Baseball. Uh, and I absolutely love spring training. The the wonder and awe that I felt as a little boy in spring training, I still feel internal hope that my team will win, uh, which was a lot of hope back then for the Astros. Uh, I still feel that now. I count down the days till pitchers and catchers report. And the younger, newer players that come up that may not have either been in the big leagues before or really young people that you know you're going to see at some point. I always love that they're focused on and they get attention in spring training. What, if anything, do you enjoy back when you were doing the beat? Did you attend spring training? And what does that mean from sort of your perspective? Yeah, I went down to spring training once back when I was working for ESPN. And I did so not in not necessarily in an official ESPN capacity. I was actually down there to visit some friends of mine who worked for the Red Sox at the time, but was able to sort of leverage my fact working for ESPN to get a press pass and, and be there as a member of the press. You know, that's that's such a crucial time as a beat writer is, is spring training, because when the games actually start, uh, everything's very saturated from the media perspective. There's just so much, so many other beat writers there. There's TV reporters, you know, national writers, everything like that. And so it's really hard to to establish any sort of one-on-one -on -one connection with these players. Whereas spring training is very different. You know, it's, it's there's only so many outlets that are willing to send someone down to Florida for a month and a half and and be able to, to flip that bill, I mean, realistically. So you can take that time and really build for yourself the relationships that you're going to need to take your content to the next level during the season. You know, that's, that's just so critical as a beat writer. You have maybe six or seven other people who are looking at the same exact thing you're looking at. So how are you going to summarize and describe it in a way that is unique and is going to bring the, that reader back to you as opposed to your six or other seven competitors? This is something we, we have to do at Compliance Week as well. You know, some, one of the, the main things we try to leverage is we always write with the chief compliance officer in mind because we know there really aren't any other major news outlets that do exactly that. Um, so that's how we're able to be unique and have that sort of value proposition of, okay, I know this piece is written with me in mind. So when you're approaching anything from a beat writer perspective, that's always the thought process is what can I do to make this unique and to make this stand out among the rest. And spring training is just such a huge difference maker in that regard, because it's just, you're able to go up to these people and talk to them as people and build that relationship. And then you can leverage that relationship throughout the season or with these, you know, these younger players, it's the same exact thing. Get them familiar with you, get them to understand, you know, the work that you're going to put together. You know, it's just crucial to any sort of beat writing layout for the whole season. One other thing I've always loved about spring training is once upon a time I had some in-laws in St. Petersburg, Florida, and the Cardinals had their spring training facility there. And they would actually send younger players out into the community to have dinner or, or meet or have coffee and just in a very informal manner meet the the fans. And that engendered a lot of great publicity for the cards, but it also really helped. I think those, those players understand, you know, we're just regular folks, but we love baseball and to be able to have that opportunity to have that connection really helped foster the love of the teams and the individual players. It's so informal down there. Uh, many times you can just strike up a conversation with a player and just really have an enjoyable time. Typically the weather's pretty nice. So that can be a big factor if you live in a place where winters aren't, aren't the greatest. And uh, I'm going to be really interested to see and hope springs eternal. 
everybody's number one. Nobody's lost yet. So that was the, the other thing that I always enjoyed about it. Yeah. Call, it, go ahead. No, I was going to say it's uh, everyone's got a chance at the MVP very right at the start of the year, right? No, you're, you're 100% right. It's just uh, it's a more laid back environment. Some of these athletes are really the type of people that get completely locked in once the regular season begins. And it's really hard to, to sort of broach that wall sometimes. So it's nice to have pressure be a lot more minimal so you can actually talk to a, a person as opposed to a, a machine, as, as some, some players would call themselves. Kyle, there is one thing I forgot to ask you about, so we'll make this the last segment, which is we've got Weave Compliance Week has some awards that they're seeking nominations for. Could you tell us a little bit about that? I know we're coming up on a deadline for nominations. Yeah, thanks for reminding, Tom. So we are doing our, our Excellence in Compliance Awards once again. So this is the fourth year that we're doing it. We previously used to do a series that was called Top Minds, where we would highlight 12 individuals in the compliance profession. But over the last couple of years, instead, we've sort of turned it into a little bit more of a formal award show, though there's not so much of a show element to it. What we do is we profile the winners on our website and we give them a shout out at our national conference. So right now, like you said, nominations are open. They will be closing in mid-March, although there's a potential we might have a very short extension as we've done in previous years. We're seeking nominations for six awards. It's Chief Compliance Officer or Chief Ethics and Compliance Officer of the Year, Compliance Innovator of the Year, Compliance Mentor, Rising Star in Compliance, Compliance Program of the Year, and Lifetime Achievement in Compliance. So certainly if you're a listener and, and you have a colleague that you would like to nominate, please do. You know, For us, this is just a great opportunity to just hear more compliance stories and spotlight some of these individuals and the hard work that they're doing. You know, One of the things we're always looking for is why, why this year? Why is this the year that this person deserves to win? So we've had some really strong stories we've been able to tell, especially over the last couple of years with everything that's been going on globally with the pandemic. You know, it's been really easy to point out some of these compliance officers that have done just great work under these less than favorable conditions. So thank you for, for acknowledging that, Tom. It's something we take a lot of pride in, especially from myself and speaking from the editorial side of Compliance Week. I love being able to just tell compliance stories and just be able to say, hey, this is how someone else is doing the same job you're doing, and maybe you can take something out of it. And I would just echo that, and I would add that this is, if you are if you have someone you know, this is your opportunity for you personally to get involved in a way to honor them. This is the set of awards for compliance professionals. So it also... In addition to whatever personal feelings you might have, it allows the entire compliance community to really acknowledge people who have stat, stood head and shoulders above the crowd. So if you know someone, please go to the website that's not behind the paywall so you can make that nomination. And I look forward to seeing uh, this year's winners as well. Well, Kyle, unfortunately, we're near the end of our time, but I am Tom Fox, your host. And thanks again for having me, Tom. Always a pleasure. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of From the Editor's Desk. I hope you will consider joining me and most of your compliance professional friends at Compliance Week 2023 in May in Washington, D.C. It'll be a great conference. Listeners to this podcast can get a discount of $200 for registering using the code TF200. So we're going to link to that in the show notes, and I hope you'll consider joining us at Compliance Week 2023. From the Editor's Desk is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network, and I hope you'll join Kyle and I again next week 
where we take a look at stories which have or will appear in Compliance Week 